Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Y'all can hear me okay out there? Yeah, okay. I, I know what the problem was. It wasn't in the monitors at all, so earlier we were having trouble knowing if y'all could hear. So if y'all can hear, it's okay. I got the voice in my head to keep me comfortable. A number of them, as a matter of fact. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Don't forget the Lord. This morning, our focal passage is uh, verses 11 through 20, but uh, I want to read chapters 8 and 9 this morning. This was our D group reading from the beginning of the week. I believe we read chapters 8 and 9 on Monday. I'm a week behind. That's what I thought. I got my little handy-dandy cheat sheet right here. October 26th. Yep. So this was our reading for this week, uh, the beginning of the week, and we, we moved on through Deuteronomy right into Joshua. Spoiler alert, Moses dies. Didn't know if y'all were aware of that, but he did. But as I read through it, I was... Uh, I, I, Right now, that this is where the Lord's leading me to, as I said, to to preach from our D group readings, and uh, I normally read the whole week's worth of readings at the beginning of the week to see where Scripture's going, what it's talking about, see where the Lord wants me to go for the next Sunday, and I knew Monday morning when I read this one, I was like, oh, I think this is it, but I'm going to read the rest of it just to be sure, and I did, and and I was right, this is where the Lord was leading, it was uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. But as I said, I want to read the whole thing because it gives us good context for what uh, uh, Moses was saying here and in this passage that we're going to look at and, and gives us the surrounding message from Moses' last sermon to his, to his folks. So beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, Moses is recording, recorded as saying, carefully follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land the, land, uh, the Lord swore to your fathers. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That verse should ring a New Testament bell to you. Is Jesus quoting it. Verse 4, your clothing did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been dis, uh, disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a, a land with streams, springs, and deep water sources flowing in both valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you will mine copper. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he was giving you. And here's where you'll see the passage on the screen. That's where I'm picking up now, Judy. I didn't warn her I was doing this, so uh, the, the, our focal passage will be on the screen. There we go, verse 11. Be careful 
that you don't forget the Lord. You can see why I got creative about the sermon title, Don't Forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I'm giving you today. When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had not known, in order to humble and test you. Second time he said that in this passage. Uh, to humble and test you so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. You may say to yourself, uh, rather, uh, verse 16. Nope, I'm in the right spot. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. In order to confirm his covenant, he swore to your fathers, as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them, I testify against you today that you will perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. Listen, Israel. Today, you're about to cross the Jordan to enter and drive out nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities fortified to the heavens. The people are strong and tall, the descendants of the Anakim. You know about them, and you've heard it said about them, who can stand up to the sons of Anak? But understand that today, the Lord your God will cross over ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will devastate and subdue them before you. You will drive them out and destroy them swiftly, as the Lord has told you. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, whatever comes after that, there we go, I keep looking up, losing my spot. The Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God in the wilderness. You've been rebelling against the Lord from the day you left the land of Egypt until you reached this place. You provoked the Lord at Horeb, and he was angry enough with you to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant the Lord made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I did not eat food or drink water. On the day of the assembly, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets inscribed by God's finger. The exact words were on them, which the Lord spoke to you from the fire on the mountain. The Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant, at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to me, get up and go down immediately from here. For your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way that I commanded them. They have made a cast image for themselves. The Lord also said to me, I have seen this people and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Leave me alone, and I will destroy them and blot out their name under heaven. Then I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I went back down the mountain while it was blazing with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. I saw how you had sinned against the Lord your God. You made a calf image for yourselves. 
you'd quickly turned away from the way the Lord had commanded for you. So I took hold of the two tablets and I threw them from my hands, shattering them before your eyes. I fell down like the first time in the presence of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I did not eat food or drink water because of all the sin you committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and angering him. I was afraid of the fierce anger the Lord had directed against you because he was about to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me on that occasion. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, but I prayed for Aaron at that time also. I took the sinful calf you had made and burned it. I crushed, thoroughly, I crushed it, thoroughly grinding it to powder as fine as dust, and threw its dust into the stream that came down from the mountain. You continued to provoke the Lord at Taberah, Massa, at uh, Kibroth, Hataava. When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and possess the land I have given you. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not believe or obey him. You have been rebelling against the Lord ever since I have known you. I fell down in the presence of the Lord 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had threatened to destroy you. I prayed to the Lord, Lord God, do not annihilate your people, your inheritance, whom you redeemed through your greatness and brought out of Egypt with a strong hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Disregard this people's stubbornness and their wickedness and sin. Otherwise, those in the land you brought us from will say, because the Lord wasn't able to bring them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and outstretched arm. I believe it was important for us to hear the whole message of Moses this morning because it affects the whole message that we have this morning from verses 11 through 20 of chapter 8. Israel at this point is in the, in the midpoint of their trials. They, they can look back on the 40 years and the battles that are behind them. There are certainly, though, battles still in front of them. They will fight over and over and over. But at this midpoint, at this point of, of temporary rest, they are reminded of their promise of permanent rest, the rest that is coming, the promise that is given through the land, through the promised land, and the rest that will come to them if they will but obey. If, in the words of verse 11, they will not forget we, as believers, just as they, are under deep obligation to obey Yahweh in the light of His great goodness. That's what we do. We look at God and we say, He is great, I'm not, therefore I will obey. Not, God, what will you do for me if I obey? And that sometimes is our tendency. See, I am burdened as the pastor of First Baptist Church that we'll spend a few months now in expectation, waiting for the rebuild. We'll spend a few months in awe and even obedience to what the Lord is doing. We'll, we'll spend a few months growing deeper in our faith. We'll, we'll turn to the Bible right now. We'll, we'll, grow, uh, we'll uh, serve our community. We'll be out doing things like handing out food for eight hours on a sunny day. But when it's all rebuilt, when all the drywall and paint are dry, and we get 
our comfortable <clears throat> seating, we fall right back into ruts. We get right back into those comfortable ruts that we've been in. Or maybe, maybe we get into new ruts. We create new ones. We're out of the old ruts, but look what we just did. We created some new ones to travel along. Or maybe we just mourn the old ruts that are gone. But nevertheless, we, we long for comfort and we place comfort above obedience as God was warning his people not to do. So I think this morning, based on verses 11 through 20, we need diagnostic questions for the coming months and years. It's, it's a horrible, uh, 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 helpless thing to go to a mechanic and he asks you what your car is doing and you go, well, it's making a noise like this, but it's more of a squeak, 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 squeak. No, it's kind of a and then he gets in it and drives it and can't make it do it. Right? He asks the diagnostic questions to finally, to figure out what's wrong and you try to give an answer. And then nowadays with the cars that we have, they get their little computer thingy and they plug it into the car's computer thingy and the computer thingy tells the computer thingy all these thingies are wrong. And we get the diagnostic questions answered. And I believe we today need to do some preventative maintenance and begin to ask these diagnostic questions this morning so that we're prepared to ask the diagnostic questions next week and next month and January 2021 and 2022, whatever that year brings to us, we're always ready for what's coming. So we've got, I think seven, I don't know, I didn't number them, diagnostic questions from chapter, from verses 11 through 20. The first question we need to ask ourselves upon reading this passage is, what should you do? That's the first diagnostic question. That's the first answer Moses gives in his sermon here in Deuteronomy. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. What should we do? Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. And, and we would say, oh, I won't. I won't. He goes on how you do this by failing to keep his commands, ordinance, and statutes that I'm giving today. I won't forget, Lord. I won't forget. And I guarantee you the people sitting there that day were listening to Moses and saying, Moses, how are you going to let us forget? Right? Every time you preach, you're talking about what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. That's all you talk about. You got any sermons that make us feel good? And Moses says, all I've got is the word of the Lord. Don't forget, because the Lord knew they would forget. It didn't matter how often they were reminded, they would still forget. Does anybody know a child that no matter how many times you remind them to pick up their clothes after they take a shower, they don't? I'm, yeah, okay, well, I got some I see that hand. I see that hand. I see. Because no matter how often you remind them, Moses knew, you will still forget. You will still forget. See, disobedience 
both leads to and is caused by forgetfulness. Notice that it's a double, disobedience is a double-edged sword. We will be disobedient because we have forgotten the Lord, but we will also be disobedient and then forget the Lord. That, that forgetfulness is on both sides of disobedience. Moses knew it. More importantly, the Lord knew it. And the truth of the matter is, obedience tends to be easier in the unknown scary parts of life. Moses knew when you get to the land and, and, and all the battles are fought and you're sitting in your comfy homes and, and all the times that you needed faith, have, that you felt like you needed strong faith, have passed, you're going to get comfortable and you're going to forget the Lord because it is easier to follow God when you don't know what else to do. But as soon as you get to that part of the map that you're familiar with, you don't need it anymore. You follow Google when you're going somewhere new until you get back onto I-10. And then you're like, oh, I can get home now. It's, it was getting to I-10 that was the problem. But I know, I know sulfur's on I-10. And that's what we do with God. Oh, I'm out of the scary part. I've got it now, God. So what should you do? Don't forget the Lord. The diagnost next diagnostic question we need to ask ourselves is where will you be in the future? In what's coming, where will you be? Verses 12 through 13 say, when you eat and are full and build beautiful homes to live in and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and everything else you have increases. We've got to ask the question, where will we be in the future? Ideally, we're in a better situation than we're in now. And that was the promise to Israel. You will be in a better situation than you are in now. But we have to prepare for that. They had to prepare for that. God didn't just let them get to the new, better situation and say, all right, now figure it out. He said, no, you need to understand what's coming and what will be your tendency when you get there to forget me, you will be in a better situation. You will have blessings, he says. But what does he say about those blessings? He tells us that those blessings, later on, he tells us, that those blessings are not a result of our goodness, but of God's. We tend to think things are going well, then I must have made some good decisions for the Lord. He's patting me on the back and saying, here's your prize. When in fact, good things are from the Lord. It rains on the just and the unjust, is what Scripture says. And, and interestingly enough, this is just an aside, we tend to think of that passage. Let me, let me ask you, which is the blessing, rain or no rain? It's actually the rain, especially when you live in a desert. I'll, growing up as a kid, I always thought the blessing was no rain. So, you know, sun shines on the just and the unjust is what we would say, and, and we're the just and we get the sunshine. Well, for them it was the blessing, just a way to think about that passage. But blessings fall on people who don't deserve the blessings, and blessings don't fall on people that do deserve those blessings, because the blessings aren't dependent on the people, the blessings are dependent on God. Also, we need to understand as we look at that and we consider that idea, that fact, that wealth and comfort do not necessarily equal obedience. 
or current wealth and comfort could be a result of past obedience, but as we saw with Israel over the years, disobedience crept in and we're still reaping the rewards, living in the comfort of previous obedience, but judgment's coming. I mean, just read the rest of the Old Testament. Read First and Second Kings and see your, your, your kings, your Israel, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Then came Assyria and then came Babylon and the country of Israel is no more. But poverty and struggle also do not equal disobedience. We've got to get that in mind. Gifts from God are just that, gifts from God. That is not to say, well, I can be as bad as I want and God's going to bless me. No. But it's not, also not to say, I can be perfect and God will bless me. God does what God wants to do. If you want to argue with him, have at it. You're going to lose that argument. Your arms are too short to box with God. But feel free to try. But let's just assume, first sulfur, that the next six months, the end of these next six months, or eight months, or nine months, or however long all this takes, begins a time of peace and prosperity and growth like this church has never seen before. Let's just assume that's the case. Regardless of how good it is, don't forget the Lord. It will be what we tend to do, and the Lord knew it. Diagnostic question number three, what can happen? As we look to the future, as we look to see what's coming, we have to look and see what can happen. And here we see it in verse 14. Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Where did it begin? Pride. Be careful that when you get out there, when you get into the, the promise that I have for you, that you don't become prideful. Now, we, we look for the promise of the church. The promise to our church is that if we are obedient, we will reach the nations. That's our promise. That's our land to inherit. Our land to inherit is reaching people for Jesus. And if we are obedient, we will reach people for Jesus. That's just the way it works. But if we are obedient, and if we do reach people for Jesus, it's going to be very, very um, easy for us to say, well, wasn't it great when we had the idea to hand out food boxes, or go door to door, or have this event, or have this activity, or do this in the community, or whatever it is. Isn't it wonderful that we had those ideas to reach the community? And pride will begin to swell up. And then when pride swells up, when the church grows, 
We sit back and say, well, now we're done. The church is growing, or the church has grown, or we have a number we're comfortable with, or whatever. The bank account is a certain size. The bank account has a certain amount of money in it. We have a certain amount set aside for a rainy day. All those things, as I look through Scripture, yep, didn't find where those are evidences of God working. But I do find where obedience is what matters. And when we get to that place, comfort can become an idol that replaces God. Everything's rebuilt. People are happy. People are coming in. People are joining our church. People are getting saved. The the baptism is filled regularly, and we can become comfortable with that. I've heard over and over from pastors of large churches, 1,000 people, 1,200 people on a Sunday morning, And they'll talk about how their church needed to be revitalized. They needed new energy. They needed new life. They needed new growth. And and those of us who are pastoring churches of 40 and 50 and 120 look at them and go, what? You got a thousand people. You know what? A thousand member church can be dying just like a hundred member church can. The numbers of people in the, people in the pews does not automatically indicate a healthy church. It's the number of people being reached for Jesus that does. And at a thousand people, we can be comfortable. And at a hundred people, we can be comfortable. Idols replace God any and every time we forget him. When all that matters is what we want and what we like, God has no room to grow us and we become God. And we get comfortable, and the comfort becomes an idol. The fourth diagnostic question we need to ask is, where were you? Where will you be, we asked. What can happen when you get there, we asked. But where were you? That's a diagnostic question. We have to look back. Verse 15, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with his poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint rock for you. We spent some days without water, right? Water, water everywhere, and nary a drop to drink. It's what we had when the water system went down, uh, at least in Lake Charles. We actually never had that in sulfur. But it, didn't the water go off in Carlos? And uh, some of y'all, if you're on a well and you don't have electricity, you don't have water. We know what it's like to be in need, and I, I would never want to say we've seen the worst, right? <laughs> we never make that statement, but we've seen bad here at First Baptist Church of Sulphur. But we need to look back at that, because what we realize when we look back at that is that God has never left us. He never did. That the the Sunday, I mean it, and I'm going to harp on this, I'm going to bring this up a lot. The Sunday that I stood uh, in that pulpit, August 30th, with water still dripping behind me, the holes and the, 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 the stained glass leaning over me. And when I said, this is the day the Lord has made I will rejoice and be glad in it. And so was Friday morning when that hurricane came through. It's the same day the Lord has made. I meant it. We've got to look back at where we were because God never left us. 
He wasn't gone when Laura blew through, and he hasn't been gone through the aftermath, and he wasn't gone when Delta came through, and it wasn't, he wasn't gone when we were wondering what Zeta was going to do, and we saw it go through New Orleans, and now we've got brothers and sisters in that area in South Mississippi that are going through some of the same things that we've gone through. God never left us. And we were very quick to not forget him then. So when we ask the diagnostic question of where were you, we're asking, don't you remember how he never left you then? And you need to know that he will not leave you now, but we will leave him if we're not careful. Number five? think so. What was the purpose? What was the purpose of what we've gone through? Moses knew. He told the people in verse 16, and I believe this is the, the, the hinge verse of our passage today, the, the linchpin of that verse, of this, of this passage rather. He led you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had not known, in order to humble and test you, so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. Back in verse 3, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Why, God? Why did we go through what we went through? Y'all, we have got to ask that question for every situation in life. We are great at asking that question after a tragedy. God, why did you let me go through that? How many of you have asked that question after a time of triumph? God, why did you let me win that? We, we don't. And yet God has a message for us then as well. So we must look to him, and in every situation, but especially in the immediate past times of trials, and ask what was the purpose, because God uses the trial to make us better. There are churches that did not suffer the damage that we did from Hurricane Laura. Now, I will not stand up here and say God allowed us to suffer the damage that we did and he protected those churches uh, because they, are, they were following him better or anything like that. I will not make that statement, I, mainly because God hadn't told me that and I don't want to be stoned as a false prophet if I'm wrong. But what I will tell you is that no matter the reason we go through one thing and someone else doesn't, no matter God's reasoning behind that, there is a lesson for us in what we go through. If the situation had been reversed and another church had a lot of damage and we didn't, there would be a reason why that we needed to learn from. Because God uses the trial to make us better all the time, every time. And God is watching. God is, he, he is, I hate to give God too much humanity, but I'll say this anyway, God is longing for us to learn from what we have been through and respond in obedience, respond in faith to take that trial and let it humble us. Did we need to be humbled? 
I did. As a matter of fact, I have talked to some people since the hurricane and, and unsolicited from me. They will say, this thing has humbled me. And I'm, I'm going, and I, I'm literally, honestly, I just thought about that testimony from some of y'all just then. Amazing that that's the word you've been using. And here God says the trial was to humble you. Does that mean we were prideful? Well, it did for Israel. They were a stiff-necked people. He said that a couple of times. Were we stiff-necked? Anyway, it's possible that I was, certainly at times. But even, even if I could point back and say, God, I, I, didn't, I, I, never, I never thought I was prideful. I never thought I was stiff-necked. He may say, well, you weren't. But there's always another notch I can take you down so that you will hear from me and be dependent on me. I know the truth is I needed to depend on him more. So for us, the pandemic first and then Hurricane Laura, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, they are a new start. They are a blank slate for us, both in terms of our ministry, what we do, why we do it, and the tools of our property that we use. We have a blank slate like we have never had before. How are we going to use that? Well, we answer that question by asking the question, what was the purpose? Why did we go through this? Not anything we would have chosen, and yet God is using it to grow us as a church family. What we see here was when we ask the question, what was the purpose? We understand that the Lord never forgot us. He never forgot you. Whatever your trial is, he didn't forget you. As a matter of fact, the trial was to remake you. Number six-ish, what's your ability? We've got to ask this question as a church. What is our ability to get beyond this trial, to, to move in this midpoint for us from here to whatever the promised land looks like for us? What is our ability? Well, verses 17 and 18 make it pretty clear what our ability is. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me, but remember that the Lord God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant he swore to your fathers as it is today. What is your ability? Nothing. Not a thing. I've told you, they did not teach me in seminary how to go through a hurricane and rebuild a church afterward. That was not a class. And I wouldn't have taken it if they had. I mean, unless it were required, but, but if it's just a, an elective, no thanks. And yet here we sit. What is our ability to do this? We don't have one. And we regularly overplay our strengths and we underplay our weaknesses in times of comfort. Oh, we're real quick to say how weak we are in the time of trial. I can't, oopsies, I can't do this, Lord. I can't handle this, Lord. I need your strength, Lord. And he says, yeah, I know. But when it's comfortable, when we get beyond all that, suddenly we're Superman and woman. We can handle it all. This is easy. 
Well, of course you can handle easy. Everybody handles easy. Can you depend on God to handle easy God's way? That's what we need. See, when we get into the midst of comfort and we begin to, we don't question honestly our ability, we drift from needing God to deciding we did most of the rescuing ourselves. We are bootstrap puller-uppers. That's what we are as Americans. We reach down and we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And God says, where'd you get the boots? There's a joke that's told, and I've told you all before, I'm a horrible joke teller. I, I just don't tell jokes well, never have. But there's a joke that goes along the lines of scientists went to God one day and said, God, we, we don't need you anymore. We can make, we can create life. And he says, oh, really, you can? He said, yes, absolutely. We studied it. We figured out how you did it. We've got all the right ingredients. We can, we can do this and do that. And uh, we'll show you, God. All we need is some dirt. And he said, Oh, make your own dirt. And they were stuck. See how that wasn't funny the way I told it? It wasn't supposed to be. It was just supposed to be a point. We decide. We figured out all of these things. We can do it. We can handle it. We've made it. We're comfortable. And God says, um, get your own dirt. Get your own boots. Make your own wealth. You, you need me for all of it. When we ask what's our ability, we cannot forget who we really are, and then we ask, what is our tendency? If that's our ability, then what is our tendency? Our tendency in verse 19, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them, I testify against you today that you will perish. What is our tendency? Their tendency, notice in this passage, and let me look back up a little bit and make sure I'm right. So far in verses 1 through 20, he's not said anything about other gods, about following other gods, about worshiping other gods. All he has said is forgetting and disobeying. Forget, disobey. To disobey, forget. But suddenly in verse 19, God flips it on him and says, if you ever forget the Lord your God and what? follow other gods. Well, God, I'm not going to do that. I mean, even if I forget you, I'm not going to take another God in. I'm not going to follow some other God. I, I might forget you for a little while, but I'm not going to replace you. And he says, oh, yes, you will. That is your tendency to replace God. What else are you doing if you believe by, in your own pride and your own ability after the trial? And you begin to trust yourself. When we lose our focus as individual believers, when we as individuals lose our focus on God, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago too. Don't lose your focus. When we as individual church members lose our focus, it creates disunity in our church family. And we begin to base decisions and responses on us, not God, and we end up making us God. And he says, don't. When you forget me, all you remember is you. And that's who you begin to trust. As a matter of fact, forgetting is itself the act 
of replacing God with an idol. Did you hear me? I didn't say forgetting can lead to replacing God with an idol. In this passage, forgetting is replacing God. So anytime we lose track of where God is in our lives, or better yet, we lose track where we are in relation to God, we have replaced God with something. Something has distracted us from the one that we should be serving and obeying. Lastly, what's the result? When we ask these diagnostic questions, we need to get down to, all right, what's the result of all this? In this particular case, what's the result if I do forget? Verse 20, like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. As I said, to forget is to disobey. That's it. You don't forget and disobey. To forget is to disobey. You have been disobedient, and that's why you forgot. When, when we believe our comfort is our own doing, and paramount, when we believe our comfort is paramount, we're no longer following God. When we get beyond the trial and we get beyond the point where we believe we need to trust God, we're no longer following God. And discipline is real for the forgetful. Israel knew of that discipline. So this morning as First Baptist Sulphur, here we stand at the midpoint. May not feel exactly like a midpoint, but if we're, we're looking at Israel, the battles are behind us. We've got some battles in front of us, but there's a promise that in a few months, things will be back to normal. I don't want normal. I don't want ruts. I want God to do something new. I want a new ministry. I want new facilities. I want new life. I want something new from all this. I don't want to be where we were, and where we were may not have been horrible. We weren't in Egypt. Remember, the people are saying, well, wow, it sure was better in Egypt. Yeah, it sure was better in slavery than freedom, you morons. But that's what they were saying. I'm not saying it was that. I'm not saying five months ago was Egypt. But can anybody look back just, just in your own personal life and say, wow, before the hurricane, I, man, I'd achieved it spiritually. And now we had the hurricane, and I just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not where I was with God. Maybe, maybe you are. You know what? Maybe, maybe the hurricane has shaken your faith. Let me say that, that that is okay. It's not okay that your faith is shaken. It's okay that you recognize it. Work to get that back on solid footing. What I'm asking is, more importantly, not was your faith shaken, but do you think you had reached the pinnacle before the hurricane? We hadn't. I hadn't. So here we stand here with the destination ahead of us, the difficulty behind us, and we cannot forget the Lord. We, we can't let the comforts of the past, the desire for comfort now, or the plans for comfort in the future become idols. We cannot say our goal is to not be uncomfortable anymore. 
Our goal is to serve God. Our goal is to worship. Our goal is to make disciples, whether it's in buildings with no walls or half walls and concrete floors, whether it's passing out food on a very comfortable fall day or whatever it is, those are our goals. Not any of the comforts that we wish we continued to have. And we must also ask if we have forgotten the past. First Baptist Church, Sulphur, we must ask if we have forgotten the past. Have we or had we replaced God with comfort? And have we required this disciplinary awakening? I say I will not make a a declaration that we sustain more damage than some other church because we were further away from God than another one. I won't make that declaration, but I will encourage you, strongly encourage you to ask the question, could it be, could it be that the only way God was going to wake us up was to send Hurricane Laura? I know in my life, Subtlety rarely gets through to me. Thank you for that amen, sweetie. Bluntness, blunt force trauma of a Category 4 hurricane might be what we needed to wake us up, to get our attention. The believer is disciplined for forgetting. Every one of us. Do not despise the correction, the discipline of the Lord. But for the unbeliever, they are disciplined for never knowing. We as believers are disciplined for forgiving, for, for, for forgetting. The unbeliever is disciplined for never knowing, and it is a, an eternal discipline. So if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, your eternal discipline for never knowing Christ is secure and is certain. As a believer, my discipline is just as certain if I get away from the Lord, but my eternity is secure with Him. So I want to talk to the unbeliever for just a second. And and you can know Christ. You can know the eternity that is certain for you. The the eternity that Christ bought for us on the cross. We've got to begin with you. We've got to begin with the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes every one of you. And that the wages of that sin that you commit is death. Your eternal discipline. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can have eternal hope, eternal security outside of that. God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. As a sinner, where you are, where you have been, no matter the situation, no matter the depths of the depravity, Christ died for you. He knew you then. He loved you then. He knows you now. He loves you now. And all you need to do is call on his name to be saved. To trust Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. And you will be a part of the community 
and he will take every opportunity, no matter how extreme, to remind you whose you are. Sometimes it'll be a tap on the shoulder, sometimes it'll be a a quiet breeze, sometimes it'll be Hurricane Laura to say, you're mine, wake up, act like it. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you that you continue to discipline, you continue to use sometimes very harsh, hard situations to wake us up. Lord, I I pray that we never get to the situation where it takes a hurricane to wake us up. I pray that as we examine our hearts, we find that that was not the purpose of the hurricane. That's not what you're telling us. That's not what you're telling me. But Lord, I know in my heart that for me, probably was. It had to be something drastic because the subtlety had been lost on me for far too long. And so you humble me. And you show me for all my ideas and all my skills and all my strengths that I really have no ability outside of you. And God, I believe that if every one of us here this morning could find that place where the hurricane woke us up, God, we could come out on the other side of these next few battles and we could take the promised land and we would see a church on fire for the gospel, to minister to the needs of our community, to be there, to make disciples. God, that is our prayer, and may you make it so. Use this, God, and don't let us forget you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we have our time of response this morning, you may need to talk to Jesus about saving you. Just like the verses I read, that's all it is. Know you're a sinner. Confess that to him. Ask him to save you. It's it's just that simple. Maybe as believers, as church members, we need to examine. And and, and maybe it'll take a little while, but maybe in truth you kind of already know. God, where do I need to be humbled? Where did I need to be humbled? Where have you humbled me with what we're going through right now? God, don't ever let me grow comfortable, no matter how comfortable it gets. Let's stand, let's sing, sing about the God that's so good, that uses all of these things to make us more like him.